0: This is Brian Panish from the legal podcast, Get In The Game. Hope you like what you're hearing. And remember, sharing is caring. Subscribe if you like it, share with others, but don't forget, get in the game.
1: Today we're joined by Christopher Dolan, who uh, has lots of experience in the uh, civil rights issues as well as employment. And also, I wanted you to go ahead and introduce Mari, Chris. Well, Mari Vandoma is a a senior trial lawyer at the Dolan Law Firm.
2: And um, she's very good at introducing herself. But I will tell you that she is a phenomenal advocate for all of her clients, as well as deeply involved within the Asian community in terms of diversity, education. And protection, but Mari, why don't you introduce yourself? You've got you've got a lot to tell people.
0: Yeah, hello everyone, so happy to be here. Um, like Chris mentioned, my name is Mari Macalado. I'm a Senior Associate Attorney at the Dolan Law Firm and also the Director of our Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. In addition to that, I serve as the President of the Filipino Bar Association of Northern California and also as the Civil Rights Committee Co-Chair of the Asian American Bar Association of the Greater Bay Area.
1: Excellent. And we've got a few questions that uh, some of the audience members have sent in while we're going live here. And um, let me just read off one of them right here. Yeah. So the number one thing everybody's it's on their mind is Asian Americans being attacked. Why are hate crime charges so rare?
0: I think I think a good place to get started is talking about. California Penal Code Section 422.55, which defines a hate crime as a criminal act committed because of the victim's actual or perceived, you know, protected classification, whether it's disability, gender, national nationality, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, right? There's, there's a list of those protected categories. Um, there's been a lot of hate incidents um, going on, not just in the Bay Area, but also nationally, and you know the difference between an hate incident which you know can be sometimes protected by the first amendment right to freedom of expression you know that can include hate speech or you know anything that that can be intended to intimidate or incite violence or discrimination against certain groups that's actually protected but you can use the hate speech um as evidence of of a potential hate crime if it's um in conjunction with some kind of crime, right? Whether it's a a threat to a person or property. So I think a lot of times in these hate incidents, hate crime um, incidents that we've been seeing, a lot of times it's hard to prove that it was motivated by one of those protected um, categories that I mentioned earlier. So I think the DEAs have been sort of having a difficult time with that because there's not a lot of proof when it comes to, you know, did they say something as it relates to the threat to the person or property itself?
2: And I think I think that people get confused between demonstrating someone hates someone and demonstrating that that someone is motivated by an unlawful characteristic. We often refer to these as hate crimes, which they are, but you don't have to prove hate. What you have to prove is that the racism is a substantial motivating reason. And I think that's where the DAs get hung up as well. But in our civil cases, it's substantial motivating reason is what is behind the need to prove the case. And also if someone aid and abets someone who has as a substantial motivating reason, someone's race in the denial of their protective rights.
1: Now you guys are in the epicenter of you know, the Asian community, I think the Bay Area, it seems like a pretty uh, well known for its vast Asian community. Um, do you guys feel that uh, the plaintiff attorneys are now taking notice of, of these issues and trying to get their um, their plaintiffs to come forward and discuss um, how they've been wronged in so many situations such as employment and and uh, um, you know basic civil rights. So I think
2: that the, the current climate is one that is actually historically parallel to what was happening in this country in the mid to late 1800s. Um, Asian people were brought to this country uh, to build this country, to contribute their labors, to extracting gold in California And the Asian contribution to this state in this country is without parallel. What happened is then there was the civil war and following the civil war, there was a depression. And then depression, people were out of jobs. And so people started turning their hate and their anger to a readily identifiable minority, which were Asian immigrants uh, who were doing jobs that other people wouldn't do and in some instances doing them for less. So we see that there was then a a vilification of this definite racial minority, which is not unlike what we saw in our last administration. And it was white men who were perpetrating the hate crimes. And I mean, these are, we're talking crimes that were genocide. Uh, There were fires set to Asian communities in Los Angeles to burn them down and people lynched. In San Francisco, similarly, there were attacks on the Asian community. The hatred was remarkable and offensive and disgusting. And it was committed by people who were supposedly um, devoted to freedom of all people. And there was hate speech used to incite a lot of this. Uh, It was about how Asians were taking jobs from white Americans. And you hear about our last president saying things like Kung flu, Chinese virus, also thereby making it seem that the challenges facing Americans were the result of, of Asian population. And so this is unfortunately nothing new. Uh, it is, I think, a repetition of a foul period in our history and something that needs to be dealt with right away. But I think historically, it's important to understand the context that led up to the Exclusion Act, which excluded uh, Asian Americans from well, being citizens, owning property. Uh, Mari, why don't you take off on that if you think there's some more to add?
0: Yeah, like like Chris, you know, Talked about this. This is not new. In addition to the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, if folks can recall, the Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II. You know, Chinese Americans faced persecution during the Cold War of during the Cold War in the 1950s. Um, and same, post 9/11, Asian Muslims and Sikh communities were targeted. Um, shortly after that, so at the beginning of COVID 19, at the COVID 19 pandemic. You know, the the comments by elected officials referring to the coronavirus being the Chinese virus or Kung Flu really fueled anti-Asian sentiment. And we've seen hate crimes generally decrease this last year, but anti-Asian hate incidents actually surged by 150%. And majority of the folks being targeted are older people and women, you know, really vulnerable members of our community.
2: In terms of people and their clients and coming forward with these cases, in the employment context, there's a stigma involved with people coming forward, whether for a claim for anything. Uh, And in a climate that you have that is openly hostile towards one group, I think that creates a little bit more reticence for that group to come forward. Because they don't want to be perceived as taking advantage of a situation or you know crying wolf, uh, I think that there's also the issue about visas. Um, some people are here on work visas that are from Asian countries and are concerned about rocking the boat and perhaps losing a visa if they challenge their employer um One of the biggest impediments is that some of these hate crimes are not committed by, obviously, institutions that have financial backing behind them so that there's a a pocket to recover from. Uh, However, unless people take these cases and take them as far as they need to go, the law without enforcement is just paper. But the, the laws themselves provide for recovery of fees and and also for um there to be penalties that can motivate folks to bring these claims and if there isn't a pocket there, take the damn claim anyways that's what I say
1: because it's the right thing to stand up for makes sense and there's actually there's and there's I think there's a few bills being put in motion right now they were kind of you know delayed in the past couple of years, but now they're really getting some fuel behind them. Have you guys seen those recently for California?
0: I know that Assemblymember Bonta, who is, has been recently um, nominated to become our next AG, did put has a bill out there right now, which is more about um, helping serve the community, providing more access to support. Um, that that's one that I'm familiar with, but I know I saw that there was a recent one, um, a federal one, but I am not, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I, I do know that you know, President Biden did issue an executive order, uh, but, you know, that's not going to address all of it, right? We really need bills that has teeth to it. Um, So, so hopefully with, with more, with the media um, highlighting all of these um, really terrible attacks on Asian Americans, Pacific Islander community, um, we will get better results with regards to just, updating the bills to to pursue these kind of cases.
2: And when you look at what's happened in in the time period since 2017 up into the present, there were a ton of bills that were introduced that were designed to track data as to the amount of anti-Asian violence, establish a hotline and training for police, and these bills either died in committee or died on the floor. So, those bills did not get put in place prior to what we're seeing happen today. uh Last year, they were focused mostly on coronavirus bills, and we are hoping that the um the current status where now we're emerging from the panic pandemic will allow the legislature to turn their attention back to creating these laws that will allow more data to be collected. And and, I mean, there isn't even a hotline currently to report Asian hate crimes. So that's one of the things that the legislature hopefully will do that will allow the data to be collected and allow people to receive a more prompt response.
1: Interesting. And um, let's talk about bias when you're looking at uh, a potential trial um, how are we going to tease that out? Have you guys thought about like traditional approaches and how do we move uh, the jury around to see what your, your case is about? Well, for me, I always like to try to figure out
2: if the jury believes that they somehow have had their interests affected by a particular group. Um, For example, although you might not ask specifically about uh, a Chinese immigrant, you might ask someone if they ever felt that they did not receive a job because someone was brought in on a visa from outside the United States. Um, You might ask similarly, is there anyone who ever felt that they uh, were an applicant for a job who was suitable but believed that someone else received the job? And what you're doing is then you're beginning to get to the periphery of people who may have an implied bias for feeling that they have been excluded. Um, you know, right now we know that there's a lawsuit being brought against Harvard for what they're saying are a pro-Asian or anti-Asian. Um, Amari can clarify it for me. You know, you find out who believes they've been affected in a particular way by a member of a culture. You want to know where they've traveled. Have you ever traveled to any of these countries? What was your experience like in in traveling there? Um, you know, do you have coworkers who are from whatever an Asian an Asian country? Uh, do you know anybody who's been affected by um, the coronavirus? Uh, is there anyone here who um, has some strong beliefs or? resentments towards people who may be from Asian countries based upon the coronavirus starting there. And, and, you know, you're moving from the more subtle to the more direct. And I think when you do that within a questionnaire, you're actually getting people to expose themselves a little bit more and open up to where you may get that answer that you want on that more direct question.
0: We all have our own implicit biases and asking the right questions to, to get to get to that side, I think will, will allow you to kind of expose some of that in, in subtle ways in the beginning, and then you can get to more direct questions later on uh, with regards to selecting your jury.
2: I had a recent experience. that was somewhat of a, I think it's very illustrative. Um, I was trying a case in Alhambra, which is in the Los Angeles area. And Alhambra is a, a town that's a micro community And I would say it's probably 80% plus Asian. And so when we drew our jury pool, we drew a lot of members from the Asian community, even though that's the greater Los Angeles basin. Uh, And I represented a client who was a a man from um, El Salvador who had not learned to speak English. And my concern was that the members of the Asian community might think that this man having been there for 20 years and not learning English uh, that they would have a bias against him and you would be shocked (laughs) to the number of people who said yes and then that was what I wanted to see and then when I started combing through those people on the jury I realized that there was a common experience between my client and many of the people on the jury or their parents And specifically the common experience was coming to the United States for a better opportunity for their children. And so I asked members of the community and and I said, well, who here has a parent that came here for the first time? they raised their hand. And interestingly enough, some of them were the same people who were um, put off by his not speaking English. And I was like, why did your parent come here? they said, create a better future for their children. And so what I had to do was I understood there was a bias, but I understood also the next level, which was there was a, a common, you could call it a theme, you could call it a common experience of people coming to this country for a better opportunity for their children. So, learning about the bias, understanding I wasn't going to be able to eliminate everyone's bias, what I tried to do then was to take that bias and have it parallel the experience of my client so that the jury would be teaching others in the jury, even if they're gonna get knocked out, that this is not uncommon. And I asked members of the jury if they had parents who never learned to speak the language. And they said, yes. And I said, why? And they said we live in Alhambra. There's no need for my parents to learn how to speak the language. Um, and so I was able to take away what I call the concept of the other, which is a massive impediment in jury selection. It wasn't somebody with a different other experience this was my father who was now in this case because my father came here, worked hard so that I could go to school. So, I mean, that's a direct way of dealing with it, but it was interesting because it was the reverse. It was dealing with the potential bias that Asian people had against, or an American people have against immigrants from um, Central and in South America because of the president also vilifying them. And and at the same time, those two populations have suffered horribly under this last administration so that when you have members of one of those populations uh, and also a member of another population, you can draw that common experience together and you delete this concept of the other and you make them both then champions for that experience and for that person who has suffered to bring some sort
1: of justice to them. You know, this makes a lot of sense and it kind of reminds me of, we're all immigrants, right? <laughs> this country was founded by immigrants. A few yeah, hundred a years of, ago, we all spoke different languages. <laughs> yeah.
2: oh, but a lot of us all look alike more than others. So I don't think we can, I don't think I can say my Irish immigrant experience puts me into, a, into today's dangerous situation back when oh. it was occurring. Um, a lot of people came from Ireland, and the way they got citizenship was they signed a paper that they'd go fight in the Civil War, and if you survived, you got citizenship, but I think that there's a homogenization amongst white Europeans uh, coming to this country such that we're not readily identifiable from different groups, and why we are all from uh, perhaps immigrants. Uh, there are definitely those of us who've had a much easier experience because we looked like others who came before us.
1: Well, you mentioned some events like the civil war thing and so on, but how about these recent events? Um, Is that an opportunity for people to come forward like COVID, 9-11? Are these people being overt because of those events? Is that bias evident?
0: Yeah, I think think we really do encourage survivors of, of hate incidents and hate crimes to, to come forward. You know, the data is just as important, um, even if you're just reporting something regarding um, some obscenities that were, that were yelled at you, which actually happened to me and my child uh, about a couple of months ago. We were just walking down the street and and this man started saying things about the coronavirus and Asian Americans and other terrible things. But, you know, I, I had told folks that I I shared the story with that I, I wasn't really afraid. It was more of a frustration and sadness over the, the creating kind of like creating the other, right? Like Chris was saying, and also sort of pitting minorities against each other when really what we need at this time is support economically. A lot of people are suffering because of the coronavirus, because of the economic downturn and, and that's not being addressed. And that, people are really suffering. So we encourage folks to report these incidents because the more data we have, the better um, our our government can respond to to these kind of um, incidents and and really address the underlying issues that that are causing the division in in our community.
2: So I'm looking at a chart that was published by, um, it's called CAP Radio in this cap radio article just put out on March 27th in Sacramento, lists through California in the counties that we have, the percentage of hate crimes that are reported that are filed. And you can go county by county by county and see the number of cases that are filed um, by the district attorneys in those venues. So, you know, we have to remember what gets prosecuted is often dependent upon who's doing the prosecution. So for example, in Imperial County, only 33% of complaints were filed. In Orange County, 45%. In Merced County, 0%. Mariposa, 0%. Napa, 17%. Sutter County, 0%. And when you get to progressive jurisdictions like San Francisco, even in San Francisco, only 68% of hate crimes that were filed, um, were, that were made, um, were filed as cases by the district attorney. I found this map so interesting as I was preparing for our conversation. But then you see some pr- surprises. So for example, in Contra Costa County, 100% of the cases referred to the district attorney were filed. San Joaquin, 83%, Madera, 100%. You get down into Kern County, 100%. And that was shocking to me because I thought, okay, some of these places, you know, they're pretty rural, uh, but it turns out that those communities also value their immigrant populations for many different reasons. Some of them are agricultural based reasons, and some of them are just a commitment to justice. I mean, LA has a 72% file rate, which is more than San Francisco, but both LA and San Francisco have very significant historical Asian populations. So that is a um, a source that comes from the California Department of Justice. So it's interesting, if anybody wants to look at it, they just type in where California district
1: attorneys filed hate crime charges, and it'll come up. Interesting. That's really good. Um, you guys had a, a few cases that are Similar. In fact, you mentioned the uh, woman who was waiting in line at the Nike store. Is that what it was? Can My you give us some ahead. more? You Can you give you the background, me? Mari?
2: This is a yeah. case that Mari taking the lead on.
0: Yeah, so our client, she is a minor. She was trying to go into a Nike store and this is at the, right at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And her and her friend, who is also Asian American were not allowed inside the store. Um, their Caucasian friend though was allowed in and the employee who stopped them specifically told them that we can't let you in, um, you're, you have coronavirus, we don't want you to, to scare our other customers. And so we, we have filed that case. It just was recently removed to federal court, um, but, but yeah, that, that case is, is ongoing right now.
2: Mario, I also participated in a trial that we did that nobody probably would have taken, but uh, one of the associates in my office, Gazale Motoressi, who now works with um, somebody else, unfortunately, but she moved from the area. She came to me and said, hey, boss, there's this guy in the lobby. and I, I, He's either crazy or he's really got something bad happening to him. And she said, this restaurant is working him 18 hours a day. And I looked at her and I said, what do you want to do? She goes, well, I want to take the case. And I thought, okay, go take it. Uh, We didn't bother figuring out how much he made, how much he lost. It just seemed to be the right thing to do. And, And Mari and I prosecuted that case and we found out that a Japanese company had brought him over to work in a sushi restaurant. They had lied on his visa application saying that he was going to be the head of hygiene and safety for their restaurants. And they were working him 18 to 20 hours a day, six days a week, forcing him to live in company housing. In company housing, he was treated abhorrently, spit on, kicked, yelled at. And he was afraid because he had been told um, by people working at the company that they would have the Yakuza, which is sort of the Japanese mafia would harm his family if he raised any issues. And you know, this man really didn't have a place to go. But when he came to us, we were able to help him through immigration lawyers to gain a T1 visa for being human trafficked. And his family now lives in the United States. We were able to um, try this case, resolve it, and to help him to purchase a home and to have his children be able to be educated in the United States, which was his dream that never thought would come true. So... There are cases that people need to take because they're the right thing to do. Uh, And that was one of them. And Mari worked her butt off. We both did on that case. And he was one of the most grateful people ever and the one humble and kind person. But these circumstances may sound absolutely impossible and bizarre and actually be true.
0: Yeah, I always share that case as, as one of the highlights of my career so far. In addition to the terrible treatment he was getting, not just in terms of wage and hour violations. I mean, he wasn't taking meal breaks, rest breaks. He was also he's our client is is Muslim and he was forced to to drink alcohol. He was forced to eat meat. I mean pork rather. And and they would tell him, Why don't you eat pork? And and said really terrible things about his wife um, as well. So it was a, a terrible abusive place that he worked at that he had to live with coworkers who who would physically and and verbally abuse him and and you know he felt stuck he felt like he had nowhere to go and and that his family or he himself would be would be you know killed if if he ever tried to escape so so it was it was you know great great timing for us that he came to us and that we were able to to help him with that and 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 just grateful to, to Chris for, for taking a chance on, on this case, because we really did change his life.
2: Yeah, I flew to Japan with one of our other lawyers, Emile Davis, to take depositions in Japan of the company to prove their involvement. That, because the U.S. company, guess what they did? Filed bankruptcy. So we went after the parent company in Japan under the alter ego theory. And we spent a week in Japan taking depositions at the U.S. Embassy. You know, I think something that's important is for people to know what is a hate crime because there are criminal statutes but there are some key civil statutes that are often referred to as hate crime statutes and they are, are different things. So for example, let's say somebody was going to vote but someone intimidated them based upon their status so that they wouldn't vote or tried to coerce them to vote a particular way or otherwise to interfere with their rights by some threat or imitation, intimidation. And that's covered under what we call the Bain Act, which is Civil Code section 52.1. So there doesn't have to be violence against them, hatred against them, but just an interference with their rights by threat, intimidation, or coercion. And that's significant for people to know because that could fall in any one of the categories, or in, in a number of scenarios, like the right to enter into a store. And then, Mari, do you want to talk a little bit about the Ralph Act?
0: So the Ralph Act guarantees that each person in California be free of violence, intimidation, and inside of violence against you know their person or their property, but it has to be based on actual perceived protected classifications. Um, including, And that actually includes citizenship or immigration status, political affiliation, even, and race and national origin. So that one does require, you know, threats or intimidation of, of, of violence. Well, it's
1: so like, really interesting to me that you guys, I mean, I, I especially know your background, Chris. When you have a, uh, a mission, you go for it. You don't stop. You just go all the way. Um, What gives the confidence to you and can you offer other lawyers? What can they do to, I mean, you got on a plane to Japan. That's something people rarely would do. Um, Where'd you guys get the confidence to do that? Well, I think that I'm very fortunate that I work with
2: people who are all inspired to, to give the big bad guy the middle finger. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Um, I tell people that one of my, somebody said, who do you consider a hero? And I consider that, guy, that, that man in Tiananmen Square with his grocery bag who kept moving in front of the tank to stop the tank. Now, there's a guy who's committed. Did he have an army behind him? No. Did he know it was wrong? Yes. Was he willing to lay it all on the line? Yes. Did that have an impact? Absolutely. And he paid for it with his life which is the unfortunate part. Um, but in, in our office and in, in my office is an extension of my beliefs. Uh, many of us went to law school thinking we wanted to make some kind of change to, to make a difference. And in my firm, I encourage people to actually do it. Uh, we have, we laugh about it, but I have a, a case selection criteria that's, a. Uh, involves the three P's. And Mari, do you want to tell people what the three P's are?
0: Yeah, it's my favorite. Um, well, one, it's still a business, right? So to the extent that it can make profit, you know, that's one of the P's. The other one is if it can change policy. We take on cases that, you know, may not necessarily be profitable, but if it can make a difference policy-wise, we will do it. And the last one is, if would this case piss Chris off? <laughs> Whenever I look at cases, and I know that this is really really going to make Chris angry, then then absolutely. If, if two of those categories are met, it's, it's definitely a yes for us.
2: Or if it just really affects a good policy or really pisses me off. I mean, and, you know, I also encourage that to the lawyers too, if it's something that affects them, you know, in sort of gutturally in affects them. And it is something that I would hate to think that this is something that affects the people who I respect so much, and work with, and not give them the opportunity to be empowered to do something about it. Because part of what makes us better lawyers, I think, is this feeling of empowerment. And you ask, how do you give people confidence to do this? Well, you do it, and you do it with them, and you finance it. And even if it doesn't make you money, it's the right thing to do. And I firmly believe that if you're only chasing dollars in this business, you're not going to make the change. That we can make happen. And, you know, Mari knows we, we have a case right now. I'm waiting on the, the, the opinion from the Court of Appeals against Amazon, which would be the first case in California to ever hold Amazon liable for the sale of defective products sent by third party manufacturers directly to the, um, to the purchaser. And, you know, we're talking a multi trillion dollar industry. And they've never been held accountable for this before. When I took the case, the case we took was for a woman who was burned by a hoverboard that blew up in her home after Amazon had stopped selling them. But Amazon never stopped a shipment to her home that came after Amazon took them off the listings because they knew they were dangerous. Mm. Now, this woman was injured. Um, Is it a catastrophic injury? No, it's not. Uh, Is it a case that most people would take even if there was clear liability? No, it's not. Has that case cost me $200,000 in terms of prosecuting it, Um, flying up to Seattle, hiring appellate lawyers? Absolutely. And so will I make money on that case? No way in hell. I'm going to lose my butt on that case financially, but I'm going to be able to turn around with the lawyers that I work with, look back and say, I made a difference.
1: I I think I think every I I think every plaintiff attorney should right now send a check to Dolan Law Firm and just to.
2: I've (laughs) been waiting
1: on that ten percent contribution, right from
2: Uber. (laughs) I mean, you look at the Uber case that we took before there was any insurance from Uber, and we took it and we went to the legislature. And now there's insurance on every Uber car out there, in these. Cheap people out there haven't sent me a single check for 5%. <laughs> That's right. You know, I feel like the guy who created free agency, he made no money, but look at all the folks who have now. <laughs> so there's uh, another law that I want to talk about, which the employment lawyers are usually familiar with, which okay. is the Unruh Civil Rights Act. In the Unruh Civil Rights Act, often we call it sort of the lunch counter law. And what it means is that you cannot discriminate in contracting or business based upon a protected classification. And those classifications in California are much broader than other places. That includes race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, political affiliation, sex, sexual orientation, age, disability, citizenship, primary language, immigration, uh, and or a gender expression, gender orientation in San Francisco, it includes height and weight, so if you are someone's discriminated against and not allowed the same access to goods and services or contracting because of that, there's the Unruh act uh, which operates to seek to remedy that, and that's um, civil code section fifty one and fifty two so You know, people think, okay, you primarily do uh, employment and PI, and we do it very well. Uh, And I would say that, yes, primarily, but where is it as a lawyer that I feel the most empowerment? It's when I make a company act responsibly, or I hold someone accountable for an abuse. I I will take a case against an individual who assaults someone right? And and now, for example, we're seeing assaults in Chinatown, older people getting attacked. I'll take a case against an individual if there's no money there. You know why? Because if they get a job, I'm going to dog them for 20 years. And they're going to pay for 10 years on that judgment and 10 more years on that judgment. And it's going to be something they will remember for the rest of their life. And hopefully when they talk to their idiot friends, they tell them about what the reality is. The other thing is the evidence that we gain through a civil case, we can turn it over to the district attorney and try to motivate them, he or she, to take some action. Because, look, here's the free evidence. You know, you don't even have to do too much. We've done it for you and and motivate them to bring a criminal action that might not otherwise
1: be brought. Let me ask you a question there. Uh, you talked about. Proving our, I guess by punishing these bad actors. Um, uh, How are you doing that? Is that the verdict?
2: Well, (laughs) paying for a lawyer is one way to punish them. Uh, The verdict's another way to punish them. Uh, Subpoenaing them at work is another way to punish them. I mean, just some of what we do and how we do it certainly can have an impact. Um, Asking for potentially a personnel file to see if there's been any actions before of a, of an animus that might help us to, to demonstrate that motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a verdict holds people accountable, but so does being sued. I am um, look settlement is it's a client's ultimate decision. If a client mm-hmm. says I want to take this, I'm willing to have it be confidential. And sometimes that's to the client's benefit so that relatives or friends don't come out of the woodwork looking for money. Uh, but, if they don't, if they don't want it to be confidential, well, then I'm with them all the way, uh, and we are constrained not so much in our firm by our desire to settle it, uh, but yeah. by our clients' wishes. And sometimes those clients' wishes can be in the millions of dollars if they were to sign a confidentiality agreement. I mean, we we have okay. very large employment cases that we deal with. You know, there are laws underway that they're underfoot, and there are changes like where sexual harassment um, now settlements can't be a mandatorily confidential. So there's precedent to move it forward into other areas like defective products and, and hate crimes along these statutes. I mean, you just gave me a great idea, which is for next year to try to put this on somebody's legislative agenda, that the violation of these hate crime statutes can't be confidential.
1: Yeah. Uh, we've been looking at some other reports about that i'll share it with you too and the rest of the audience about uh measuring confidential settlements so um and it, you know we're all about sharing the data and the more data we have obviously the more we can train the systems to understand the you know nature of the case and then how it can go to the uh, algorithm for you guys to make more, better decisions. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. You
2: see, you sort of take, you take what's in my gut and you tell me whether or not it's in your head. And I think that's a good thing to do. Um, (laughs) You know, my gut sometimes gets fueled by uh, its holy sense of righteousness. (laughs) And every now and then I need somebody else to say, Yeah, I get where you're coming from, dude, but, you know, the data says, and, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't think that trial lawyers will ever be taken over by artificial intelligence because there's such an energetic, emotional component to it. I never, ever would consider letting somebody else pick my jury. I know people that have very talented people come in and pick a jury and then they leave. Well, they've just divorced. They've gotten a divorce with this jury that has been developing a relationship with them, and so I hired a juror consultant once, and the juror consultant sat, and when I did what I did and talked to the juror consultant basically agreed with everything I did. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> you know And so I realized from that moment forward, I, you know I'm not hiring juror consultants uh, That's a lot of sense yeah. because they're not the ones who are in relationship with these jurors, and you are in a relationship with them. And my now oh. wife of 17 years wanted to get an idea. I said, you need to see what I do because what I do is not a normal job. And you need to understand the kind of commitment that I have to have and the sacrifices you're going to make.
1: you are so, on the jury?
2: Uh, no, no. <laughs> she came and sat in the courtroom and okay. watched. She was unemployed after the dot-com implosion. She watched four trials. I looked at her and I said, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. We don't know each other, you are just a spectator. Uh, Because of my relationship that I developed with these jurors could be affected by the fact if I had another relationship with someone in the courtroom. So we wouldn't touch, talk, we'd go in the elevator and then we'd make out like crazy and the doors would open and we'd just be standing straight up again. Uh, But it's that, to me, that (laughs) important, that relationship with the jury that
1: you do not want them to be thinking about other relationships you have. Is there any last things you guys wanna tell plaintiffs about how to um, onboard some of these cases? Um, I mean, you guys are probably gonna see a lot more action than anybody. Well, you know, I I think that you
2: have to start first by educating yourself and your office. Okay. And Mari, I wanna congratulate on, she's a pioneer in, in my office. She's a pioneer as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what we've done to try to become better lawyers and better people and to deal with the implicit bias that's in the workplace. Because you're very keyed into it data-wise, as are we often when we're picking juries. But in order to be able to do that well, we have to be able to do it in our businesses first. So, Mari, do you want to talk about what it is that you've been doing with such great success in our firm. And I encourage other law firms to do it.
0: Yeah. So we, when I approached Chris about this idea of creating a diversity equity inclusion committee at the firm, it really was Uh to, to uh, deliver equal justice for all. Right. We're very committed to that. And I think there's value in ensuring that the employees at our firm feel Like they can be their authentic selves, that they can bring who they are at the firm and, and knowing that we support each and every one of our employees, um, to whatever is going on with their lives. So, so we put together this committee. We got a lot of buy-in from, from our, from the employees, from management, um, in terms of, of not just, um, Participating, but really putting on the programming, and we approached it in a few different ways, uh, focusing on recruitment, really recruiting diverse talents and and from different backgrounds, uh, but as well as in our retention of employees. Right, we, we put on a monthly presentation on various topics on on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We just celebrated Women's History Month, and uh, the topic on that was not just you know, women's rights, but really the intersectionality of all of our our identities. So, for example, myself as an immigrant woman of color who is also an attorney, you know, what does that mean and how do we kind of live our life, um, not just belonging into one specific identity, right? Uh, We also did Black History Month. We celebrated Unsung Heroes of, of the Civil Rights Movement. So we're putting on programming like that that's presented by different members of, of the firm. And we're also focusing on our marketing and community outreach, whether that means sponsoring community events, um, sponsoring bar associations whose focus is on diversity, but but also changing the way we market ourselves um, as a firm. You know, we are very proud of the fact that we have multiple languages available. Uh, we are also focusing on the diversity of our attorneys. I and. Mean,
2: But I think in terms of how does what Mari's talking about apply to picking a jury, right? Well, if you've been learning about intersectionality, then you understand how a juror is not just one dimension. Right. If you're learning about different cultures, then you are in a better place to understand those cultural influences. And and if you're learning about implied bias in yourself, you're more aware of implied bias in your jury pool. And that's why I'm, I'm trying to say it kind of starts, it starts at people looking at themselves. I mean, if you go to some of these great trial lawyer colleges, they have you do psychodrama and looking at your own life experiences and getting into the midst of who you are, and it makes people better lawyers. If you're understanding implied bias, what better thing could you do to pick a jury than understand their implied biases? So Mari's really making it an an educational program for the whole firm and and getting everybody's buy-in. And and the firm is trying to project um, what we believe in by also training ourselves.
1: And there's a- So you guys are a role model too. We're we're trying. Is that the um, HR department? kind of programming too or they no we have a senior lawyer
2: on it. Uh I want it to be it's a it's a department
1: in itself. Uh, Yeah. no uh, I'm sorry. I meant I meant like when you're doing the educational programs you talked about outside in the public. Would you like say HR department wants you to come on board and, and teach their group, say a lunch and learn. Is that something that's possible or you think I might be shooting themselves in the foot too many times?
2: No, I think it's great. We just happen to have a very good employment law department <laughs> and, and people who are very, we, we do 35% of our work is employment work. So our employment department conducts most of, most of it. And what I find is that the exercise of people in, in, in terms of putting together the programming themselves is buy-in uh, and it strengthens the DEI community. But if, if people are, are at the inception and they don't have currently the in-house talent, there are facilitators who come in. Plus, for example, the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association has a committee for diversity, equity, and inclusion that has resources. The Consumer Attorneys of Los Angeles, um, they have a committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's the Women's Caucus. They have a bank of materials that are available that you can bring into your firm. Uh, without cost, and 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 if it's a matter of oh, I don't want to a- a educate my employees because they might sue me, then you're doing something fucking horribly wrong, and maybe you should be sued because uh, you know really, if if you're not going to have justice in your own office, then you shouldn't be trying to be out in the world promoting justice. Right now, diversity is something that is extremely important to our profession, to our country. And there are organizations that are focused on it, which you don't have to spend an arm and a leg. Um, and you know, with your own firm, you can set up something like they have with, you know, CLE. You can say, listen, my expectation of you is to participate in X programs, to attend, for example, our workshops. Um, you have to attend a certain number of them. At the end of the year, it'll be re- seen as part of your review. And, and Mari's just heard that from me and she's making notes saying, okay, we'll bring this up at the next meeting. Uh, but you also have to empower <laughs> <Know> people <yourself. laughs> and you got to take the risk. I'm a white dude with a white dude experience. I make mistakes. I need people to point them out to me. I'm committed to doing better and learning, but l- let's be perfectly clear. Not at having had an experience of growing up as a, a, a what you would consider a, a recognize protected classification, trust me, I got some weird shit that happened to me, but not something that I wear on my face and my body. Um, I I can't fully understand the experience. And if what we can do has helped anybody, reach out to Mari. One of the things that we did agree she's doing, and it's taken her extra time, is she's actually creating a roadmap on how to put together a diversity, equity, and inclusion program in your own law firm. It doesn't have to be a huge law firm to do it, um, it, but it's something that we're putting together so people have a concrete way of making a difference in their own firm.
0: In the courtroom, we rely on compelling evidence often rooted in the detailed work of scientists. That's why I'm introducing Science of Justice. This podcast by Jury Analyst isn't just legal chatter. It's a deep dive into law and science using real science, real data, and real time. The team at Science of Justice stands for integrity. They break down complex scientific principles to serve those wronged or injured, making it accessible for lawyers and other justice seekers. So now, let's really up your game and embrace some real evidence. Say goodbye to following the herd and start practicing law based on facts. you got to check out now the Science of Justice podcast.